Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from the series, Behold Your King, a study in the Gospel of Matthew, where we see that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the God who saves, come to establish his kingdom, reveal himself to us, and provide salvation. Here's Pastor Nick. Oh, good morning, everybody. Great to see you all. Glad you made it here safely with the cold and with the, the icy roads. So glad that you're here. We're in a study through the Gospel of Matthew. Today we'll be picking up where we left off in Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 11. So go ahead and open there in your Bibles, in your Bible apps, so that we can study together. And please bow your heads with me as we pray. Lord, we ask that as we open your word, Lord, that you would speak to us and that we would receive what you have for us this morning. Lord, we pray that this would be a time in which, by your spirit, you're doing a transformative work in our lives, changing our hearts, changing our minds, and changing the trajectory of our lives as well as our actions as we move forward from here. So, Lord, we avail ourselves to you and say, Lord, have your way with us this morning. Speak to us and help us to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of my favorite things to do on Sunday afternoons in the fall is I like to go on bike rides with my kids. And the reason for that is because Sunday afternoons in the fall is when the Broncos are playing. And I used to watch every game. I watched every minute of every game. But as you might know, these last few years have been pretty hard on us as a team. Uh, We've had a string of losing seasons. We haven't been able to find a franchise quarterback And I realized that, uh, you know, if I was watching the Broncos and they lost, it put me in such a bad mood that I treated people badly, like I wasn't a nice person. And so I decided, you know what, on Sunday afternoons, I'm going to go out on a bike ride with my kids, and it has made me a much happier person. But I was telling my wife about the Broncos and how we are doing as a team, and first of all, she did not care at all. But the other thing was, she said to me, you know, you know, you're not like on the team, Because every time you talk about the Broncos, you use the word we, and uh, it's like you think you're like part of this or something, but all you do is just sit on the couch and yell at the iPad, like that you're not like really involved in this, you know? Maybe you shouldn't get so upset, was her point. And when she said that to me, I realized something. I realized she has absolutely no idea what she's talking about. (laughs) Because these are the Broncos. Like, my entire sense of identity is bound up with this team. They are me. I am them, right? If they win, I win. Uh, If they lose, we all lost. That's how this works. But apparently, my wife does not understand that. But it's funny, isn't it, how people tend to identify with a team in that way. And if you think about the Olympics, I always found this interesting. If you watch the Olympics, they'll they'll announce something in the news that evening, like some sporting event took place, and they'll announce it on the news. Today, Belgium beat Brazil. Well, I mean, it's not like the entire country of Belgium beat the entire country of Brazil. Brazil's a big country, right? It was more like a couple of people from Belgium beat a couple of people from Brazil at some, some competition. So why would we say that the country of Belgium beat the country of Brazil. Well, actually, it's because in those competitions, each country, they put forth their best players, the best they have to offer, their champions. And those people are the representatives 
of their people. Just like for us, the Denver Broncos, that's the best we have. And so if their champions win, then they collectively as a people have won. Now, this idea of representation and identification, it's also found in the Bible. Let me give you an example. The people of Israel, they were at war with another group of people called the Philistines. The Philistines were trying to conquer the land of Israel and eradicate the Jewish people. But at one point, the Israelites and the Philistines, they got into this battle where they were both so entrenched that neither side was willing to take a step and attack the other. And they had been in this stalemate for quite some time. And so in order to resolve the stalemate, Here's what they decided to do. It's something that was actually a common practice in that time. It's called representative warfare. So each side would pick their greatest champion, their greatest warrior, and the two champions would face off one-on-one. -on -one. And whichever of them won, their whole side that they represented would be counted as victorious, as having won the battle, even though everybody else in the army, except for one guy, had done nothing at all except for just stand on the sideline and watch as their champion did all the work. So the Philistines had this champion named Goliath. But the problem was that Israel couldn't find anybody who was able to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe and fight this great enemy. He was too big, too powerful, and no one could be found who could possibly engage him or defeat him. But then... To everybody's surprise, a young man named David stepped forward and he said he would do it. And instead of a sword and a shield, the traditional elements of battle, David took a sling and a few smooth stones because David was a shepherd. And with that sling and with those stones, he defeated Goliath. And as a result, the entire nation of Israel was counted as victorious. David was the only one who fought and won the battle. But all those who were in his camp, all those who were numbered with him, they became victorious as well. And they all shared in the spoils of the victory, even though they themselves had done nothing except for shiver in their boots and, and in quake in their, I don't know, gloves or whatever. I, don't know. I couldn't think of another item of clothing there. But anyway, you get the point. <laughs> they did nothing to contribute to the victory. David had done it all. But those who were identified with him got to share in his victory. Interesting story, right? How does it apply to our lives? How does it apply to what we're talking about here in Matthew chapter 3? Well, here in Matthew chapter 3, we're going to be looking at the baptism of Jesus. And for many people, this is a very confusing thing. Why was Jesus baptized? Because in our study last week, and again in our study today, what we see here in Matthew chapter 3 is that baptism was all about repentance and conversion and confessing your sins. But if Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, if he is without sin, then why did Jesus need to get baptized? And what does his baptism mean for us? And what does it show us about who he is and what he came to do? Those are the questions that are going to be answered in our study today here in Matthew chapter 3. So the title of today's message is Identified with Christ in Baptism. And here's what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 3 verses 11 through 17. We're going to see that in his baptism, Jesus identified himself with us in our sin so that we could be identified with him in his victory. 
Let me give you that statement one more time. Then we'll use it as our outline as we work through the verses in this passage. So in his baptism, Jesus identified with us in our sin so that we could be identified with him in his victory. Let's look at the first part of that statement. In his baptism, Jesus identified with us in our sin. Well, here in the opening chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, the author, the writer, Matthew, who is one of Jesus' 12 disciples, he has been giving us glimpses into certain moments in Jesus' life which reveal Jesus' identity, who he was and what he came to do. Now, here in Matthew chapter 3, we studied the first part of this chapter last week, and we were introduced to a man named John the Baptist, one of the most radical people who's lived in the history of the world. John the Baptist was related to Jesus. They were second cousins. And John, he had a calling on his life. His calling was to prepare the way for the Messiah. Now, this was something that had been foretold by the prophets, the prophets who had said that before the Messiah would appear, there would be someone who would come before him as a herald, someone who would prepare the way. He would minister in the spirit and the power of the prophet Elijah, and he would prepare the hearts of the people for the coming of the Messiah. That's who John was, and that's what John did. John grew up in Jerusalem. His father, Zechariah, was a priest. But John had gone out into the wilderness of Judea, that area east of the city of Jerusalem, as you go down in elevation towards the Black Sea, or sorry, towards the Dead Sea and the Jordan River. And he went out in that area and he began calling people to repentance. And God used John to spark really what we could call a spiritual awakening, a revival in those days. People were coming out in droves, multitudes of people, and they were being baptized by John in the Jordan River, confessing their sins and preparing themselves for the coming of the Messiah. Now, the practice of baptism, it was not something that was new or foreign to the Jewish people, but the way that John did it was something that had never been done before. Because traditionally, baptism was a ritual that a Gentile person, meaning a non-Jewish person, they would go through this ritual as part of the process of converting to Judaism. So what John was calling people to do was to confess and to acknowledge that they needed to be converted. Just as much as a Gentile person needed to be converted, just as much as a pagan needed to be converted, they needed to be converted and they needed to repent and believe. See, he was saying, your family heritage, the faith of your ancestors, even your own goodness or religious adherence, none of it is enough to save you. Instead, John's message to them was, no matter who you are, you personally and individually, you need to confess that you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that you personally need the salvation that the Messiah is coming to bring. And so now John, speaking to these crowds who have come out to him, we pick up the story in verse 11 where John says to the crowds, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
John warned those who came out to him, or sorry, John, he wanted those who came out to him to understand something. He wanted them to understand that his job was to prepare them for the one who was to come after him, who was the Messiah, the Savior of the world. What John is telling the people here is this. When the Messiah comes, he's going to baptize you with a different baptism than the baptism with which John is baptizing them. In other words, John's baptism was different. It was different in meaning and purpose than, for example, the way that Christians are baptized today. So when a Christian person is baptized today, it's a different meaning in that baptism than the baptism that John baptized people with. And we can actually see this in the Bible. For example, in the book of Acts chapter 19, we read about a time many years after this when the Apostle Paul was on his third missionary journey. He was in a city called Ephesus, which is in western Turkey. And it says that Paul met some people, and he says those people were believers, but they only knew the baptism of John. They had only been baptized with John's baptism. And it says there this, that Paul said to them, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So here's the thing about baptism. Baptism is always about identification. Identification with someone or something. The word baptism in Greek is the word baptizo, and it means literally to immerse. That's what it means, to immerse. And so that word was used of, for example, dyeing cloth. So if you had a piece of cloth, a piece of fabric, and you wanted to dye it or change the color, what you would do is you would baptize it in a dye. And when it came out, it would take on the color and the characteristics of that dye. In other words, in the same way, John's baptism was about identifying yourself as a person who needed the salvation that the Messiah was going to bring. You were identifying yourself as a sinner, as, as a person who was eager to repent in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. But when Jesus came, after his death on the cross, after his resurrection from the grave, Jesus instructed his disciples to baptize those who would follow him. But that baptism was different. So when we talk about Christian baptism, Christian baptism is about identifying yourself with Jesus in his death and resurrection. But here's the thing John wanted his listeners to understand. He says, listen, I want your focus to be not on me as John the Baptist. I want you to not be focused on and committed to me. My role is to point you to and pre prepare you for someone else who will come after me, the Messiah. And in this way, I would tell you this. John is a great example for you and me in how we interact with other people. You see, rather than drawing people to ourselves, rather than creating devoted disciples of us, rather than making people who are impressed with you or devoted to you, our goal ought to be to point people to Jesus and encourage them to be devoted followers of Jesus. So John says, he says, when the Messiah comes, he's going to baptize people in a whole new way, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And John says that the Messiah is so much greater than he is that he, John, is not even worthy to carry his sandals. Now, that's an interesting thing to say, right? Why would John say that? 
Well, it's because in those days, it was common for a rabbi. A rabbi, by the way, is just a word that means teacher. So a rabbi would have disciples. So when Jesus had disciples, that wasn't a new thing. It was common amongst rabbis to have disciples. And the disciples of a rabbi were essentially that rabbi's servants. They were kind of like, today we would call them interns, right? It's like you uh, get to hang out with this rabbi, you don't get paid a lot or maybe anything, and you're kind of a servant. You do whatever needs to be done. So they were kind of like interns, these disciples. Um, but there was a limit to what a rabbi was allowed to ask his disciples to do for him. And specifically, a rabbi was not allowed to do anything that would humiliate his disciples. And one of the things that it was said that a rabbi was not allowed to do because it was considered too humiliating was that he could not command his disciples to untie or to carry his sandals. But look at what John says. He says, look, I'm not even worthy to do that for the Messiah. In other words, that thing that is below a servant I'm not even worthy to do that. That's how much greater the Messiah is than me. Because, again, John said, when the Messiah comes, he will baptize you, not with water for repentance, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, what does that mean? First of all, remember that the word baptize, it means what? To immerse or to be overcome by something. And here John is speaking of two different things, baptism with the Holy Spirit and baptism with fire. First of all, baptism with the Holy Spirit speaks of one of the promises of the prophets that re regarding the Messiah. One of the promises that the prophets had given regarding the Messiah was that when the Messiah came, he would bring and give an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all people. Now, this was talked about by the prophet Joel in Joel chapter 2. It was talked about by the prophet Ezekiel. In the days before Jesus, right, in the time of the Old Testament, we read about how the Holy Spirit would come upon people at certain times uh, as for certain reasons. For example, the Holy Spirit would come upon rulers and kings. He would come upon priests and prophets for the purpose of empowering them to carry out a particular calling from God or to do God's work in the world. So the Holy Spirit would come on certain people to empower them to do God's work. But what the prophets foretold was that when the Messiah came, they said God's Spirit would then at that time be poured out on all flesh. In other words, not just on prophets and priests and kings, but on young women and old men and everybody in between. And not only would God's Spirit be poured out to empower people, but also what the prophet Ezekiel foretold was that in that day when the Messiah comes, God will do something new. He will place his spirit inside of people. God will actually indwell people by his Holy Spirit. Now that was something that had never happened before. It was foretold by the prophet Ezekiel. You see the word Messiah, it means anointed one. And so not only would the Messiah be anointed with the Holy Spirit upon him, but he would be the one who gives the Holy Spirit to us. To be baptized with the Holy Spirit means to be immersed in, to be overcome by the Holy Spirit. So much so that the Holy Spirit becomes the controlling influence in your life, directing you, guiding you, empowering you, both to walk with God and to be used by God in the world. 
So I want to ask you this question. I encourage you to ask yourself this question as you, as you listen today and as you leave from here today. Is the Holy Spirit the controlling influence in your life? Is the Holy Spirit the controlling influence in your life? Listen, throughout the New Testament, what we see is that to be a disciple of Jesus, it involves being filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit. But then what about this other phrase he uses? What does this mean? That he will also baptize with fire. Well, the baptized with fire speaks of how the Messiah is going to bring judgment. And you can see that really clearly if you look at the very next verse. Look at verse 12. It says this, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, a winnowing fork was something that a farmer would use for the purpose of separating the wheat from the chaff. It was kind of like a pitchfork. What they would do is they'd take this pitchfork device and you would take it, you'd throw the grain up in the air, the stalks of wheat, you'd throw them up in the air. And that process of being tossed up in the air, it would cause the wheat kernels that you want to separate from the chaff, which is the dry, dead husk around the wheat kernel. It would cause them to separate. And so the farmer would then separate the grain, separate the chaff. They would keep the grain and they would burn the chaff up in a fire to dispose of it. And what this is, it's a picture of the judgment that is to come. Remember, earlier in this chapter, John had said to the religious leaders who came to them, the Pharisees and Sadducees, remember what he said? Who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? And this idea of separating the wheat and the chaff, it's very reminiscent of several verses in the Bible that describe the day of judgment that is to come, when all people will stand before God and there will be a great separation. In Matthew 25, later in this same book, Jesus will use a famous description to describe this. He'll describe it as being like separating, when a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he says that the Messiah, when he comes, he will baptize with fire. So what does that mean? for you, and what does it mean for me, right? What does that baptism with fire, that judgment mean for you and me? Well, it really depends on what your relationship is to the Messiah. Because for those who are in Christ, those who have put their trust in Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord, that fire will be a cleansing fire. Just like how fire is used to purify or refine gold or silver, God will work in our lives to remove impurities, to get rid of the junk, the worthless stuff, in order to make us better, in order to make us more like Jesus, to make us more useful to others and for his kingdom. But for those who are not in Christ, for those who are trusting in themselves for salvation, for those people, the fire that he will bring will be the fire of judgment. In other words, what it means that the Messiah will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, what that means is that Jesus is coming both as a Savior and as a judge. He's coming both as a Savior and as a judge. And which of those you will experience depends on your relationship with him. Now, this was a very important message because many Jewish people in that day, just like many people here in our community today, they believed that God's judgment was coming for other people, but not for them. In other words, they believed that other people needed to get right with God, but they didn't think that that applied to them. 
And John was saying, no, 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 listen, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done in your life or have not done in your life, you need to be saved. And the way to be saved is to repent of your sins, to put your faith in the Messiah that God is sending and the salvation that he's coming to bring. And apart from that, you too will be subject to the judgment of God as a result of your sins. It says in verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan River by John to be baptized by him. Now this is incredible because imagine there are these huge crowds. All these people have come to be baptized by John to confess their sins and say, I want to get ready for the Messiah. And now the Messiah shows up. He appears. In the Gospel of John, it says that at this moment when John saw Jesus coming, that John shouted out to the crowd, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You can imagine that people must have been amazed. They must have been astonished. This one that they've been preparing themselves for, here he is, right among them. You can imagine this collective gasp that would have gone through the crowd. They must have all turned towards him and marveled at him. This is the one they were waiting for. This is the one who their forefathers waited for and expected. The king from David's royal line, the liberator who will set them free and save them. I imagine that people must have knelt down in, in honor and reverence to him. But then notice what Jesus, after being introduced as the Messiah, look at what he does. He, he goes up to John and says, I want you to baptize me. Which again, is a strange thing because baptism, as John was doing it, it was all about repentance. And you can see that John himself feels this tension, like, is this the right thing to do? Because look at what he says in verse 14 says that John would have prevented Jesus from being baptized. He said, no, 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 Listen, I need to be baptized by you. The other way around, why do you come to me to be baptized? But Jesus answered in verse 15, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, just an aside here, those two words, fulfill and righteousness, those are two of the most commonly used words here in the Gospel of Matthew. It's what Matthew's Gospel is all about. Jesus is the one who fulfills the promises of the prophets, and he lives a righteous life in order to give us righteousness as a gift. But think about this. One of the biggest questions that people have when they read this section, why did Jesus need to get baptized? Because notice, that's what Jesus says. He says, this has to be done to fulfill all righteousness. But again, if baptism is about repenting of your sins, the Bible tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet he was without sin. So if Jesus was without sin, then why did he need to get baptized? And here's why. It's because Jesus, as the Messiah, he came to be our representative, our representative. Do you remember that story I told you about David and Goliath? That's a story about representatives, people who stand in the place of someone else and represent their people collectively. You see, one of the biggest questions that people often have about Christianity and about the message of the gospel, they wonder, how is it possible that the actions of one man could bring about salvation for a multitude of people? I mean, he's just one man, right? Jesus is one man. If it was possible 
for someone to give their life in exchange for another person. If it was possible for one person to take the judgment for another person's sins, okay, maybe I could, I could make sense of that. But how is it possible that Jesus, one man a long time ago, could, through his actions, bring about salvation for all people at all times who put their faith in him? The math doesn't seem to add up. Jesus is just one man. How can his actions affect every person throughout history who puts their faith in him? And the Bible actually gives us the answer to that question. It's found in the book of Romans, chapter 5. Paul the Apostle there, he explains, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, the man he's talking about there is Adam, the very first human being, Adam. And what he's saying is that because Adam sinned, all of humanity after him became sinners. Now, maybe you've thought about that before and you've thought to yourself, that doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair that one guy a long time ago had a bad day and now we all have to deal with it. Like one guy messed up and now we have to suffer the consequences of his mistake. Well, in that same chapter, Romans chapter 5 and verse 14, it explains how this is. It says, Adam was a type of the one who is to come. Now, what that means is that Adam was a representative for all of humanity. Just like how, remember, Goliath was the representative for his people. He was their champion, the best they had to offer. Well, the same was true of Adam. He was the best we had to offer, the champion, the best we could put forth. Think about this. Adam had a ton of advantages that you and I don't have. If anyone would have been able to succeed, it was him. Think about it. He, he was born into a world that didn't have all the problems that our world has. He didn't grow up with the baggage of a dysfunctional family. He didn't live in a corrupt society. And most importantly, he wasn't born with a propensity to sin, what we would call a sin nature. He didn't have any of that. He was our best specimen. He had the best chance of success, and yet he, Adam, failed. And because he failed, as humanity's representative, all of us fell along with him. But now, God, in keeping with his promise, he has sent us a new champion, a better Adam, a new representative for humanity. And where Adam failed, Jesus, the Messiah, the new Adam, is going to succeed. Here's what it says in that same passage in Romans chapter 5. It says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The reason Jesus wanted to be baptized was to identify himself with us in our sin. Remember, baptism is about identification. And Jesus, by being baptized, even though he had never sinned, he was identifying himself. He was standing in the place of sinful people. When Jesus went into the water with John, Jesus was taking the position 
in standing in the place of sinful humanity. He was identifying himself with us. In Isaiah chapter 53, in a prophecy about the Messiah, Isaiah the prophet said this about the Messiah, Jesus. He was numbered with the transgressors. That's what's happening here. Numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. The purpose of Jesus' baptism, first of all, was for him to identify himself with us. He came to be our representative. He was the son of David, come to stand in our place to fight the greatest enemy of all, the enemies of sin, Satan, and death. And unlike Adam who failed, Jesus is going to be victorious. And because he's our representative, his victory will be our victory. And that brings us to the final part of our sentence here. You see, in his baptism, Jesus identified himself with us in our sin so that we could be identified with him in his victory. Let's read from verse 16. It says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. See, Jesus' baptism wasn't only about identifying himself with us as sinners. It was also a preview of how he was going to attain that victory which he came to win. You see, as Jesus went under the water and then came back out of the water, it was a picture, a preview of his death and his resurrection. Later in his life, as Jesus hung on the cross of Calvary where he died, Jesus would be baptized into the judgment of God on our behalf. And at that time, he will die, he'll be buried, but after three days, he will rise again, having conquered over sin and even over death itself. So now we, as we are baptized as Christians, as we are immersed in the waters of baptism, what it represents, what it means, is it's not merely an acknowledgement of the fact that we are sinners. It's something much greater and much more worthy of rejoicing. When we are baptized as Christians, we are identifying ourselves with Jesus and his victory. As we go under the water, it's a picture of death. We have died together with Christ to the old life that we lived apart from him. Your old nature, everything that went with it, is being buried, never to be brought up again. And as you were raised up from the water, it's a picture of how you have been born again, resurrected to new life in Christ. You have a new identity, a new destiny, and you have a new purpose in life and a new power for life by the Holy Spirit. And I want you to notice what happened when Jesus was baptized. It says that the heavens were opened. The Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. Remember, Messiah, that word, it means anointed one. So this was a visible sign for all people to see that the Holy Spirit was upon Jesus, confirming that he is the Messiah. Just as Isaiah the prophet had said, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then God the Father spoke from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This was the divine affirmation of who Jesus is and how the Father feels about him. 
on this occasion as Jesus is baptized, we see a unique display of all three persons of the Trinity present at one time. The Father speaking from heaven, the Son in the water standing in the place of sinful humanity, the Spirit descending like a dove, and we see a display of the love that has existed in God as a Trinity from eternity past. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And here's what's so incredible. That same love that the Father has for the Son, the greatest love in all of the universe, the, the, the love that has existed from eternity past, you and I are invited in to experience that love and take part in that love as well. The promise of the gospel is that because of what Jesus accomplished in his life and through his death and by his resurrection, the Bible says that because of what he did, therefore to all who receive him as their Savior, as their Lord, God gives them the right to be called children of God. Jesus was the only begotten Son of God. But what happens when you put your faith in Jesus, the Bible says that God adopts you into his family. You become his child. And what it means to be a child of God is that when God looks at you as you are in Christ, because you are identified with him in his victory, that when God looks at you in Christ, he says the same thing about you that he said about Jesus on that day. This is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Maybe you've sometimes wondered, how can I live a life that is pleasing to God? How can I be a person with whom God is well pleased? Well, one time some people came to Jesus and they asked him that exact question. They asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And it says that Jesus answered them and said, the work of God is this. Here's what God requires to believe in the one whom he has sent. And that can be you today. You can be a person with whom God is well pleased. You can be a beloved child of God with whom he's well pleased. If your identity is in Christ, if you identify yourself with Jesus by putting your faith and trust in him, both as your Savior and your Lord, you can do that today. And I urge you to do so. Because in his baptism, Jesus identified himself with us in our sin so that we could be identified with him in his victory. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.